There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Chris has enjoyed success in the porn industry. Let's just lay that out there. Welcome back to the front three. It's the front four again this week. It's me, Adam Bowen. It's Lawrence McKenna. Right, that's perfect. I'm not even going to put the backing track in because I mean, you've just yeah. made that. But Nico is here as well. Hello. As is the one and only Chris Hennage. Good evening. The the Zoom video, let me just say, enhances this experience so much more for me. I'll Mainly... I enjoy seeing, you know, we were just talking about everyone's hair before before we started. Yeah, no, no, no. We were insulting my hair. Oh, no, no. Uh, let we me compliment your tash. Thing. Yeah. The tash is looking strong. And your consistency. Your consistency in hair is incredible. Thank I you. wake up and I just sort of go, Ugh. yeah, that'll do. Whoa, but no, I don't, I don't disgust. <laughs> sorry, I don't, sorry. <laughs> if I was you, Lawrence, I'd definitely be disgusted. Oh, <laughs> I'm, sorry, I'm sorry. Listen, we've got lots to cover this week. So much to cover, in fact. We've actually got two podcasts for you. Today, we're talking Raheem Sterling calling for more representation in football with black, Asian and minority ethnic coaches. We're talking Timo Werner's surprise move to Chelsea. That's right, some actual football news. And we'll be finishing up by discussing the latest Football media controversy over total football analysis at the end of the show. Then on Friday, we've got a bonus podcast coming your way with our friend and guest Christian Hurley, who'll be joining us to talk in depth and discuss further whether the anti-racism and Black Lives Matter movement will have a lasting impact on sport and on football. So you've got that to look forward to on Friday, as I say. But first, Nico, you weren't with us last week when... Uh, essentially free white English guys talked about anti-racism at length. <laughs> um, you've been very vocal online about joining this movement, about doing your part, which has been great to see. Just firstly, to kick off, I mean, what have been some of your thoughts on everything that has unfolded in these past few weeks? I mean, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I think, um, you know, growing up, it's something that I I'm not familiar with how you guys were educated with regards to some of the movements that happened here. Um, you know, in the 60s and 70s. But that's, you know, kind of what we learned about. And it was always talking about the, you know, that specific Americanism that it, that's what expressing your, you know, di direct democratic right is, is, is talking about the, the issues that you care about, and uh, actively petitioning them. And um, 
obviously from the from the powers that be and from the status quo and 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 those in power right now we've seen an active sort of push against uh some of the things that people in this country have been protesting which is mainly uh police brutality and and the active institutional racism that exists here um but it's a movement that you know I'm really proud to be a part of and it it functions in so many different ways. You know, it's not just about me coming on a podcast and paying lip service to it. It's about allowing other people to other people who haven't had the same ability or platform that I have to have their voice and also to just show up and, and be supportive of, of those kinds of people. So, you know, I've gone to a couple of protests in the in the past couple of weeks. And I think for me, it's been a really powerful experience because, you know, I've had my views change and and go along sort of a more progressive line over the past couple of years. Um, but to to go out and go be a part of your community in such a direct and material way, I think is a really powerful thing. And uh, I think it's something that I'm going to be proud of and, and proud of that I did for the, the rest of my life. Hmm, as you should. I mean, when we were talking last week, we were very optimistic, shall we say, that this movement feels different, that it feels like a culmination, that we're already seeing change um do you feel similarly positive that that it is different that this change and this movement can be lasting well the encouraging signs that i see is sort of the rhetoric around it and it's hard not to get trapped in sort of your own social ghetto or your own social bubble with regards to the conversations that are being had but i think along mainstream lines i've seen people regret sort of the very liberalistic sort of uh faux um shows and gestures that don't really foment any kind of change. You know, we saw Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats in this country kneeling yesterday and people just kind of saying that doesn't really do anything for us anymore. And I think at the beginning of the protest, there was a man, I forget his name, who was talking to Anderson Cooper on CNN. And he was making uh, the the remark that, you know, the Ferguson riots and or rather the protests, I'd like to say the Ferguson protests, they took place when Obama was uh, president and when we had a black secretary of state. So it's not just about the simulation of change, or it's not just about putting people of color in positions of power to uh, simulate the idea that they too have a say. It's about doing the things that are going to actually affect their communities and our communities as a whole. You know, we talk about defunding and abolishing the police. And um, I, I've seen sort of people relentlessly ask for that and ask for changes that are more socially and communally uh, funded to be more involved in their community. So I think that's why this movement is so different is that it's not just, you know, people like me, people who have experienced and do experience privilege uh, on a daily basis, being angry or going out to a protest for one day, people are still going out, I still plan to go out, you know, people are continuing to, to do this. And it doesn't, it's no coincidence that this happens at the end, or not at the end, but rather amidst, uh, you know, a massive health pandemic when many people are unemployed. It, you know, it, there are all these factors that are contributing to this being a special moment. But the thing I'm most encouraged by, like I said, is sort of the the rhetoric around it and not just accepting like, okay, the Minneapolis City Council intends to defund the police. They're pushing so that that actually does happen. And they're not going to stop until that actually does happen. Before we move on, as I said earlier, we've got this great podcast coming up with Christian Hurley on Friday where we talk about in depth how anti-racism could have a lasting impact on sport. But I just wanted to ask you, Nico, specifically with regards to the United States, we've seen the NFL this week make a U-turn on their policy of banning players kneeling during the national anthem. Um, 
how significant do you think that change is or does it feel hollow to you that they're essentially doing the right thing that they should have done long ago when Colin Kaepernick first started these protests and this is just a PR move they've they've been forced into by this moment? It does honestly feel forced. I can't fault an organization for um, taking the right steps or at least the right steps in my mind to uh, put the people that have been marginalized in in their rhetoric and their message in the past um, by that organization. But at the same time, you know, it's like gushers coming out and saying that they care about Black Lives Matter. You know, it's just what we're seeing now more than ever, like I sort of mentioned on the previous podcast, is like this clear definition of material conditions. These companies that seek to use people as a means for profit, they're just going to say whatever they need to say in order to guarantee the largest audience. And even though some of these statements do have meaning with regards to, you know, you will lose some people buying your product if you do support the Black Lives Matter movement, it seems like the majority of people are kind of on board this time. So they're just paying homage to the to the biggest crowd, to the largest amount of people that they can gain money from. So the the real change, I think, comes when, especially in the NFL, comes when you stop punishing black players for speaking out when you know that that's kind of the whole thing here is that Colin, Colin Kaepernick started you know the, the the conversation around these issues that are being protested now years ago and years ago that's when they said he's not doing it the right way that's disrespectful to the flag that's disrespectful to the national anthem that's disrespectful to our military but that's he that's what he chose to do and he had conversations with people on the other side of the argument who to make sure that that was an appropriate response and that was the appropriate thing to do. So for them to kind of go 180 on it and say, ah, well, now we agree with you. It just seems like every, like I said, sort of, I think earlier on Twitter, every act of faux solidarity is just an attempt to quell this moment because it is creating actual change. So that's what, that's what I think needs to stick with people is that it's great that you know, they're, they're getting behind their players and, and these corporations are saying something because it does bring attention to people that might not have otherwise considered it. But at the same time, let's not fall for the bait and, and, and suggest that uh, or think that actual change is coming when these companies pay lip service to it. Let's look at the change that actually happens legislatively. And also the people within those organizations. I mean, you can't deny a video that has Patrick Mahomes in it. You can't deny a video that has the face of your league or, exactly you know a number of people i think that's partly why you know they they in many ways had their hand forced by the people who worked worked for them in inverted commas because i, I you know i think player power has been something we've spoken about and has been something that so many people in the sports industry have been so outraged about where it's like oh i can't believe players are getting more power these institutions deserve the power is what a lot of people are saying but now that we're seeing these athletes using their player power, not only to increase their wages and their agency, but also then using that wage and agency to A, fund things that they consider to be good causes and B, uh, influence people who care about their agency. I mean, those can only, well, not actually, that's such a stupid thing to say. They can't only be for good things because Drew Brees obviously didn't exactly help anyone. But, you know, that the the agency and the outcomes in this scenario have been been really great and i also think you know we often uh i liken what happens in a news cycle to the seven stages of guilt or uh, sorry remorse and all these kind of things and and um or you know whatever stage you want to go through you can go through seven stages of um whatever right 
and you know you can you in the end get to acceptance but in many ways we have to almost go through that silly phase on on online and on social of posting a black square or posting a an initial comment or something because what you're initially doing is you're almost working that idea through and attaching your identity to it and then immediately after that you know some real change has to happen and well and, and part of it too with movements like the the black square thing initially you know, people were using the Black Lives Matter hashtag, and that was actually detrimental to people who were trying to organize under that hashtag. But right. it does at the same time, you know, there's, we talk about these overlapping circles of influence and the people that we associate with. And nobody on my social medias or very few people on my social medias, um, both personally and sort of in, in a more public space on Twitter, has necessarily, you know, disagreed with me, which is a good thing in a way, because I like the people that I've associated with. And, um, you know, find commonality in my values but at the same time those massive movements get to people who would not have otherwise seen it whose social circle would not have otherwise you know been introduced to that idea and that's what right. this is all about is sort of confronting i had a very difficult conversation with my parents the other day um you know because it is about confronting these ideas of implicit bias, these things that we do not interact with on a daily basis and really asking yourself, have I been racist? Have I, uh, you know, influenced or, or been a part of this system that has disproportionately affected people of color? And that's a difficult conversation you have to have individually and also with those around you. So while it's easy to be cynical around the movements like the Black Square thing, it's at the same time, I think, a general positive because it introduces revolutionary and progressive ideas to people who would not have otherwise done so. I I wanted to talk about Raheem Sterling, who was on Newsnight on Monday here in the UK because I thought it was a really great interview that he gave. I thought he made some really interesting points about representation in football that should be discussed. It seems like, as usual, his comments were, were distorted somewhat and the headlines, of course, were all about admittedly it's like unfortunate phrasing that racism is the only disease we are fighting right now but if you get past that sensationalism if you actually listen to the interview he made some very pertinent points specifically as i say about representation in the game which is what we should focus on which is what we should discuss let's let's hear a little bit from raheem sterling from the interview he gave on newsnight from monday i think you know the protest is it's all you know, it's a great starting point, you know, um, to start protesting, to get your voice be heard, because this is how people are getting their voices heard. Um, but at the same time, you know, people in positions which I'm lucky enough to be in, um, this is a time to, you know, speak on, on these subjects, speak on, you know, injustice in, especially in my field. This is something I always try to say to, you know, family, friends and, you know, people around me that always ask, you know, what do you think of this? I can only, you know, kind of, um, touch on topics that I see on everyday issues in my in my field. You know, there's I think there's something like 500 players in the in the Premier League, um, and only you know further that but further them are you know are black, um, and we have no representation of us in you know in the hierarchy, um, no representations of us you know in coaching staff is coaching staffs. Um, there's, you know, there's not a lot of faces that we can, you know, relate to and, you know, have conversations with. Um, and I, I do think, you know, with these protests that are going on, 
um, you know, it's all well, well and good, you know, just talking. But it's time that we need to you know have conversations to, to be able to spark debates and not just debates, because um, we've done a lot of talking to actually start, you know, implementing change. So what's the one single difference then? You think it's it's manager representation in black and ethnic minorities, do you? Or what's the one single thing you'd say has to change and could change really easily that would send the clearest message? Um, it's not just, as I said, I'm, I'm speaking on, you know, my field, you know, I, I come from the football industry. Someone like Anthony Joshua from the boxing industry, he can talk on, you know, the injustice he sees in, you know, his field. But at the same time, it's, you know, coming together and, and, and finding a solution to, to be able to, um, you know, spark change because um, we can talk as much as we want about, you know, changing and, you know, putting um, people, black people in, you know, these these positions that I, I do feel, you know, they should be in. You know, for example, the, the coach, as, as I always refer back to the footballing, um, the, the coaching staffs that you see around um, football clubs, you know, I, I'll give a, a perfect one. You know, there's Steven Gerrard, your Frank Lampards, you have your Sol Campbells and you have your, you know, Ashley Coles. Um, you know, all had, you know, great careers, you know, all played for England. But at the same time, you know, um, they've all respectfully done their, you know, coaching badges, you know, as a coach at the highest level, um, you know, and the two that haven't been given the, the right opportunities are, you know, the, the, two, the two black um, former players. There is a pretty startling lack of top-level black coaches in England, Chris. Um, the Rooney rule is something that's discussed a lot, which was introduced in the NFL, requiring teams to interview ethnic and minority candidates for head coaching and senior football jobs. It has been adopted by the Football Association here in the UK, as well as the English Football League. The Premier League have said that they're not going to bring in the Rooney rule and instead develop other anti-racism work. It's not an initiative about its criticisms, Chris, but it does feel like if an organisation like the Premier League brought in something similar, uh, it would be a good first step. Yeah, it could. I saw Dwight York um, talking about the lack of opportunities in coaching just today. Um, and to be fair, Saul Campbell did a very good job with, with Macclesfield. It, it felt a little bit under-publicised, whereas when he does something on social media that's a little bit weird or a little bit aloof, that seems to get a good amount of coverage. So, I mean, he, uh, he doesn't, uh, like, uh, pub his, the public perception of Sol Campbell and his politics do not help um, the media portrayal of Sol Campbell, do they? That's, yeah, and, and uh, I think it was Daniel Story that wrote a piece about the lack of... Um, black and, and ethnic minorities in refereeing in, in England and at the top level, the professional level, with Uriah Rennie, I think, being the last one. Um, so oh, it, yeah, it, true. I, I don't think I'm stating anything we don't know when I say there's mountains more that could be done. And uh, what I guess would be frustrating more than anything is that a lot of it is very easy to do, and yet it is taking something this seismic to start that change when really this could have happened a long time ago um i th i think it may be an instance where you only see a few instances of it now but the next generation is the one that benefits with a greater uh impact because they have not only seen those go before them but also they then benefit from a more 
what's the word I'm looking for here? Uh, a more evolved state of mind in the decision makers that will help them into this career. Because that's the thing I think you have to, to consider is not necessarily that there aren't a lack of potential applicants. It's that realistically, there will be a lot of people who were dissuaded from going into this line of work because they didn't believe that there was realistically going to be opportunities for them when they got to the end of that, which you can't really blame them for thinking that. I think the evidence would, would suggest that they were right to do it. It's going to be interesting to see the FA launched an equality action plan back in 2018. And one of the stated aims of the initiative, which which we're supposed to see some results from next year, was that as opposed to 13% of England coaching staff being filled by black, Asian, minority, ethnic backgrounds, they were aiming for 20% by 2021. As Chris sort of mentioned, it's a big problem. It's multifaceted almost. But it'll be interesting to see if these sorts of initiatives do produce some tangible results, Nico. Well, I think the difficulty with that is that while I agree that results need to be seen, at the same time, it's difficult to sort of stand by sort of quantifiable numbers and say, okay, this is evidence of progress. Because again, not to, I mean, echoing back to the conversation that we were having earlier about some of the protests that are going on in this country regarding racial um, issues, it's not just about filling a, a number. It's not just about filling a quota, like you said, 20% by X year or whatever. That's great. And that's that's something that you can show to people. That's, that's something you can put together in a press conference and say, look, this is what we've done to combat racism. But at the same time, I think a more nuanced and sort of sociological approach has to be undertaken when, you know, attacking these issues of racism. Like you said, there are, it's not necessarily that there are an absence of qualified candidates to apply for some of these positions. But there are some people that genuinely don't have the conception in their mind that they're able to go out and get these positions or be a coach in at that level. And that's why representation is so important. The problem is, is that when you simply simulate that, when you simply put someone in a position like that, it can be a positive. It can be a positive for a young person to say, look at that position. That's a representation of me. I could be that in the future. At the same time, how you create the path for people to do that organically is an entirely different conversation. So I think part of that, and this is something that has stuck with me is a, a few years ago, I was on a uh, podcast with um, Salon Andy Hickman, I think her name is, and John McKenzie. And she was talking about her experiences with regards to uh, writing and, and football media. And she said, like, it took her years to be brave enough to byline things and create content under her own voice. Whereas, and I contrasted that with my experience, which is as soon as I wanted to start doing that, and this was provocated by the content that you you guys put out, I just started doing it. There was no limit in my mind as to why wouldn't anyone want to hear me talk about football or my opinions about football. And that's something that exists because of the conditions that we live in. That's something that exists because of the rhetorical sort of moment that we live in. I'm a ostensibly white guy that can just say things and, and I'm either brave enough or, or have the, the means to do that. But Creating... Also, let's put it this way, ignorant enough in some ways. <laughs> exactly. I no, that's genuinely true. believe that I was super <laughs> I was so oblivious when I was younger that people wouldn't want to hear me talk. <laughs> exactly. It was just like well, why wouldn't you want to hear me say something? But we, Even now but... I've just cut Nico off just exactly. to say that. <laughs> but we have to so we have to create 
as funny as it is, like we do have to create that that sense of agency, that sense of ability for other people. And that just that doesn't just happen when you create a, 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 an immediate sort of numerical goal for something. You have to attack that at a deeper level. How you do that is a little bit beyond me, but I think you start by educating people in different ways. And again, having conversations with people and uh, with yourself about implicit institutionalized racial bias. That's... And not only that, but I, I it, like the the position of manager has been something I've always been so fascinated with in football. And I think something that everyone's been, I'm not obviously a unique person for being um, <laughs> fascinated with managers, but um, you know, there's many books written about them. There are many, it's, it's very much at every club, like, and this will be maybe lost on some people, but when you change manager, it's like casting the next doctor who it's like, right. What are we getting out of this character? What's going to be um, bought from what, what's this person going to bring to our club? Mm -hmm. And I feel that it, again, like we need to be honest in this, the conception of Ashley Cole and uh, John Barnes and Sol Campbell is a very different conception to the one of that level of player. Uh, but, it, it, you know, kind of a white equivalent, I guess, is the best term that I can come up with that. And uh, I actually feel that it's kind of an unfair comparison between Sol Campbell and Steven Gerrard and uh, Frank Lampard, because actually both Steven Gerrard and Frank Lampard were considered to be almost faultless club legends within their time. And they had a lot of things, in many ways, whitewashed. Well, and I think um, that's part part of why in these not seemingly non-discriminate moments or these seemingly insignificant moments or not even insignificant, but ones that do not just align with this specific moment of such great change or such great ostensible change is I remember the incident about, you know, the, all the papers writing about Raheem Sterling's haircut and spending habits and whatever. Yeah, it's exactly. those moments specifically that contribute to the overall culture of people of color not making it into those positions. When we call that, Ashley Cole, Cashley Cole, that in some way contributes to the way that that way that they conceive of it and the way that we conceive of it from managerial positions to, you know, whatever. So that's why all of these moments are important. It's not just specific. Racism is not a static concept. It's nuanced. And, and, and it's that, fluid. And that's what that's essentially what I'm trying to say here. It feels like that, you know, because people don't seem to be able to get away from the history that's told around these people. And at the same time, we don't afford we afford, especially Frank Lampard and Steam Gerrard, uh, moments in history when actually the press could have been very mean on them, such as when Steven Gerrard wanted to force his way out of Liverpool or when Frank Lampard um, you know, married someone. Um <laughs> the, 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 <laughs> Oh, sorry. Also, that yeah, the DJ incident as well. That's obviously one that was dear to my heart. Being a DJ as a child, I was utterly <laughs> upset by that. I also, I think within that bolt, what I'm trying to say is, um, essentially, we, we need to rewrite history as well about these people, and we have to go back and assess whether the assessment of these guys feels fair back then, and especially people like Sol Campbell and people like that who may have felt uh, their expect the expectations surrounding them was also unfair but then also that they have to play up to that expectation and that is such a, a web to unpick it's it's so difficult yeah that's what i mean it's so complicated so many layers to it and the media representation or, or misrepresentation of these players does have a huge impact on their perceived suitability for these sort of jobs i just i agree with what nico said understanding his point you have to go beyond quotas you have to go beyond filling right. numbers but i think 
football could always be doing more. The Football Association in the Premier League could always be doing more. But I think there is something positive in setting these goals, making themselves accountable by publishing their targets. I think there's a positive there. Do you know what is fascinating is Dave's idea of um, get a job at the Premier League. Well, I mean, never that, felt more but that's more a, prevalent than it does now. Like, that's, I mean, yeah, it's what Raheem Sterling was saying. If you wanted to be reductive, I guess. In, but but no, I mean, Dave and Raheem Sterling are two very similar characters. But I also think um, that when you look at <laughs> yeah, both statistical geniuses. When you but what I'm what I'm actually saying by that is, you know, whilst I'm busy critiquing the Premier League. I, well, obviously, you know, I've, I've worked um, with a lot of people from a BAME background, but have I ever gone out of my way to deliberately um, em employ a, a black or, you know, whatever you, whatever term you want to term these, uh, you know, any minority, if I'm completely honest with myself, I hadn't really thought about it because I never thought of myself in the position of power to be able to do that. Um, but now I feel like I'm, I could be in that position or could do that. I think my evaluation of someone like the premier league, uh, you know, essentially what I'm saying is I need to back that up with action in a way, you know, you know, we need to, you know, we do need to find more people in the, in the media industry who can also cover that kind of thing. And also people who can relate to a black manager as a black man or woman and say, Hey, I've got fair questions for you from someone who can understand your perspective. And that's exactly what Raheem Sterling said, you know, when there's someone from a black background that he can go to in the FA with a problem, that's when he knows change is going to be happening. Great guy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Speaking of racial tension, Chelsea have signed someone. <laughs> um, that's right. There's been some football news. Actual transfer news. Chelsea have reportedly agreed a deal to sign RB Leipzig striker Timo Werner, one of the most sought-after young players in the world, Lawrence. I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think. I don't think he's ever been I think uh, he sought me. after by anyone. You, you text me after I said we'd be talking about this news and said he's dead to me. Yeah, in a private conversation, something we shouldn't be shared publicly. There is a right? sense that Liverpool have really missed out on one of the best young strikers in the world, Lawrence. Wouldn't you yeah, say? So the the narrative is. Um, <laughs> I mean, the narrative for a very long time, and I think correctly, was that Liverpool are getting this guy, um, and like many Jurgen Klopp, Jurgen Klopp, a German, would also <laughs> love a German to be at Liverpool because Germans apparently congregate. And, um, you know, I, and I think that made a lot of sense. And I think a lot of Liverpool fans were excited because they thought, hmm, there are times where we struggle to unlock a defence. 
I think a lot of people um, felt that he would add something different to this to the the front line, which I'm not. Yeah, I don't disagree with, but I do think Liverpool also got a very skilled and stacked front line. I think a lot of people also thought it would change a lot of roles within Liverpool, where you've got Firmino maybe would drop slightly further back and almost play a number 10 role, or would it be a false nine, or would it be an assisted striker, those kind of things. And it, it led to so many people getting so excited, including me, because I thought, oh, you know, is this going to take us back to a 4-4-2? Is this going to be a, you know, a 4-2-3-1? What, how's it going to operate? Uh, you know, is it going to mean that the midfield's less stacked? You know, because we tried with Naby Keita to have this transitional player. Um, you had it all again. You had it all. You had it all figured out. I had it all meticulously planned out. <laughs> you know, and and my, I've got Timo Werner printed on a shirt already. This is it's unbelievable. <laughs> Not very mature. And then um, it was written for me. And and then um, uh, allegedly Liverpool a few weeks ago actually pulled out of the deal. Uh, and it allowed other clubs an, an in on this guy. Liverpool done all the scouting, you know, because Timo Werner wasn't famous anyway. And we've yeah. done all of the homework. And Chelsea just went, well, this is ideal. All the data. We'll, I see. We'll, st- we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, yeah. That's a very inadvertent uh, <laughs> Liverpool there. For no, 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 not at all. Um, he, um, the, the release clause was set to expire on the 15th of June. This was the, the reports. Chelsea have now triggered it. Nico, 54 million, I believe. Unbelievable. Dave Euros is, or pounds? Uh, 54 million pounds, I believe. Well, meaning the Euros is even more. I spoke to Dave Timo Werner briefly um, last week. He is very enthusiastic about his guy. 25 goals, 8 <laughs> assists in 30 league appearances this season. Because Dave it's, thinks he looks like him. Yeah, there is a bit of he that. He does he, look he like him. He can't deny that. But um, do you agree sure. with Dave, Nico? Is this guy the real deal? Yeah, he has been for quite some time. Uh, I was looking at some numbers earlier today when you told me we were going to be talking about him. But yeah, he's a very different player from Tammy, who currently obviously occupies their front line. Um, but I think the thing that stood out to me the most about Chelsea last season was that it was this interesting hybrid that was very Liverpool-esque for me um, with regards to how they look to create space. They were really active transitional team. And I think that's what Timo Werner brings to Chelsea like immediately is that he's a great player in space. And I I think Dave a couple of weeks ago, whether it was on air or off air, we were talking he was saying that he's actually not that good of a fit for Liverpool. And I kind of agreed because yeah, what Firmino yeah. does so well is that he links and al- allows the space for the two wide players. That's that's what he he does, I think, better than anyone else on the planet. I think that's why that front three is like great podcast um, <laughs> is, is so good is because they work so well together. And in the, in the, in, and uh, Firmino is sort of the glue that holds that together. But Werner, if they're going in that direction, which I think the jury for me uh, is still out on Frank Lampard as a coach, as far as constructing a system, um, you can't go wrong with a player like that if you're looking to create space. So I, I think he's really good. And, and although he is a significant departure from the kind of player that Tammy Abraham is. What I have really enjoyed, by the way, is the the other narrative surrounding it. So the idea, I, th- I think Chelsea have actually, they've got a great player. I'm really happy that they've got, uh, that he's coming to the Premier League. Obviously, I'm yeah. uh, gutted that Liverpool lost out on him. Because anyone wants an exciting summer transfer, right? Mm-hmm. But since then, we've obviously seen uh, a number of Liverpool greats clearly briefed to uh, go into the press and say, well, I don't think he was that good anyway. This is, um, I find that really interesting because... It's stupid. But because the, the I'm not sure why the club would necessarily be doing that because, Chris, Jürgen Klopp himself came out and said, 
there's an economic reality to the current situation, which means that Liverpool can't justify a signing like Timo Werner for 54 million, which I think three, four, five months ago would have seemed like a, a great deal for a player. Now, seems like a lot, a lot of money. I mean, his exact quote was, uh, all clubs are losing money. How do I discuss with the players about things like salary waivers? And on the other hand, buy a player for 50 to 60 million pounds, we'd have to explain. So like I said, there's an economic reality that Liverpool are operating in now. Reports are that they are facing a £150 million loss of revenue amid this shutdown, Chris. Yeah, that's fair and I think very astute from Klopp to point to that. I think when I looked at it maybe a couple of weeks ago, I thought they would potentially do the deal by selling off some of the players on the fringes of the squad, people like Harry Wilson and things like that. But if you use Klopp's own logic, those potential prices will have dropped as well. Um, I think. I think to, to almost jump a little bit off what Lauren said, I found it interesting that, if, to me, it felt like even some writers had been briefed that that Liverpool had pulled out a, a while. It, <laughs> it, it, it to me, we went we went very cold on him suddenly, didn't we? Which felt yeah. very suddenly. There were all these pieces where it was like, why Liverpool's front three just needs to be allowed to evolve on its own, and it's like, <laughs> wait, what? And and. I think what people are, are perhaps forgetting within this as well is the presence of uh, Mina Mino, who only just came right. into the squad fairly recently. Um, so in theory, will I imagine have some role to play? A um, little bit concerning. Yeah, on by the, the way, he's also gotten the push as well in the press. Sorry, Chris. He's, <clears> he's also yeah, had the on, push where on, it's been like what Minamino's brought to the team since arriving. <laughs> Understandably so. Um, in the few football manager games I've played recently, he always ends up leaving quite early, which I don't know if that will prove <laughs> prophetic at all. Um, but th- they've got as well, you've got to remember, they've got Rian Brewster there, who I think they need to decide to do something with next year, whether it's back to the championship or try and get him Sadly managed by alone the in the Premier League. Um, they've, they've even got uh, the Nigerian striker, Tewo uh, Awonyi, who, again, might be one that falls into that category of players that are sold off. So... Is he in? Um, is he in loan on loan in Germany? Yeah, he's at Mainz. Um, yeah. And so it, there's a lot of moving parts, and I can understand what Klopp is saying. I think the fact that Werner was so willing to come and yet would probably have started on the bench in theory, that means it, it probably would have made sense for Liverpool and been a very good deal for them. Um, but yeah, I guess you also have to accept that their rise has been so sharp and high that you can't continue that trajectory forever. There are going to have to be potential dips. And that's before we throw in this coronavirus situation, which clearly has impacted clubs in in a lot of different ways. And also, obviously, with Michael Edwards there, I think a lot of people have got a lot of trust in the decisions that Liverpool make on the pitch. Um, Definitely not off the pitch, but on the pitch, a lot of people have that trust. But I think it's also very easy when you're flying high or when you feel like you're flying high and the narrative is within the club that you're flying high to overlook a lot of the misgivings of an ownership or something like that. And I think there was a bit of a disquiet, I guess, between the Liverpool fans and online at FSG. A lot of that was shouted down because, you know, we're doing well at the moment to support the club. But if you look at the Boston Red Sox and what happens around the Red Sox, uh, obviously, being a Bill Simmons fan, I know a little bit about the fact that FSG, or uh, in particular uh, Henry, will brief against a player 
if they don't want them there or if they don't uh, particularly fit the narrative. And actually, I think it was, it might be Mookie Betts, I think they were trying to get rid of. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a great player. And you think the worry is that, uh, you know, that Liverpool are treated in a similar way to the way that they've treated the Red Sox, where they go, okay, we've won the World Series. Now break that apart, pause, let's go again, or whatever, whatever their theory is. And that that will sour the taste of what people love the appearance of is this very harmonious Liverpool team, this Liverpool team that will build another another dynasty. I think that's a, that that's a great that point, image. though. I think that is, a, that is a great point because a part of that, too, I, I you know, there's an element, I think, of any manager's comments in a press conference that I think are rooted in a little bit of, um, I don't know, cynicism politics. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. politics. But, um, you know, the club that... I'm, I was reading uh, Ryan O'Hanlon's uh, newsletter, No Grass in the Clouds, earlier about Timo Werner, and he said that the club that he would move to away from the Bundesliga would be able, whether it was Chelsea or Liverpool, to triple his wages. So the thing that he was talking about with regards to an economic reality, um, I think, is something that that is true with regards to the conversations that he can have with his players. You know, if this front three, which has been historic for them and allowed them to win a Champions League and ostensibly a league as well, um, is in some way disrupted by, albeit an extremely talented player, that's something that you have to factor into account. You know, you can, that's kind of, I think that's kind of the the mediation between the a manager and, and the club that they work for is that keeping that squad harmony in check by not adding not necessarily the wrong characters. I'm not sure if there's anything wrong with Timo Werner. I'm sure he's a great guy. But as far as making things uncomfortable for people that have otherwise, you know, worked well together, um, I think it would dislodge a little bit of harmony in, in the Liverpool squad if you were to to bring in a guy who is set to to displace at least one of the three players that has brought them an enormous amount of success. I guess that's also what I wonder is would he have displaced someone or would it would have, would Liverpool have shifted but it would have been I think he's more or less likely to displace shift. Salah and Mane than he is Firmino but I don't know It would be an almost yeah it, it's interesting to think about that with regards to Chelsea as well I was going to say Chris because they're a club who have been acclaimed for how they've brought through their youth products Tammy Abraham of course being the the standout player uh, at the start of the season does the signing of Timo Werner potentially displace Abraham? And when you think of the signing of, of Hachim Ziyech as well, potentially Ben Chilwell, are we seeing a potential move away from this policy of promoting youth prospects? No, I, I don't think they're moving away from it. I think they're trying to evolve to a position where they can do both. Um, mm. Because I think just this week, Faustino and John have signed a new deal so that there's clearly a commitment to youth in, in the short and long term. Now, obviously, signing a deal and playing for the team are two very different things. But I think where Chelsea are at in terms of finding that balance right now looks pretty solid to me. You've got someone like Hakim Zayesh who is, I would say, established, is, is reaching the prime of his career, um, has, I would say, consistently proved with Ajax that he can be a very talented creator. They're now going out <clears throat> excuse me, and getting someone in Timo Werner who can, I would say, while being a different player and play alongside Tammy Abraham, also reduce some of the burden on him in terms of scoring goals because I don't think Olivier Giroud and, and Michi Batshuayi have, have looked convincing enough this season. And so and you have to bring in someone. So. 
Yeah, and and that's right. the thing is, as Nico rightly points out, he he's still very young, so he's got a number of years ahead of him. I think what we've seen with Chelsea, if we go back to the start of the Abramovich era briefly, was quick, fast, aggressive injections of cash to get very established players that maybe had a life cycle of one, two, three seasons in them, in a lot of instances. Now I think they, they've learned that actually that's not very financially sustainable with some of the uh, FFP considerations, with all of these moving things, the fact that Champions League is perhaps not as guaranteed as it once was. So they're trying to strike a balance between the two, and I think they're doing a pretty good job of it. That's That's been the criticism of them for a long time, is that they had this great FA Youth Cup side that would win year on year on year, and yet they wouldn't introduce them. I think it would be a bit harsh to then suddenly castigate them for not just exclusively playing youth players, like some kind of Basque <laughs> policy meets North London, uh, West London, excuse me. Well, and you can correct me here, Chris. Like, I think part of it too in recent years has just been Chelsea as a club amalgamating assets, right? Like they have great yeah. players like Tomoroi and Michi- and not Mishibeshuai, sorry, Tammy Abraham and other guys coming through, but they also have you know, they bought Conte for a lot of money, like they have Jorginho, they now have Werner. So, and we know about sort of their very long tendrilled uh, loan system out in Europe that they still have players for years and years and years. So part of it is amalgamating assets, right? A hundred percent. I think for a long time, people like uh, Jake Cohen, who is, is a pretty noted Chelsea fan, have talked about that element of, I think Patrick Bamford is, is perhaps one of the better examples of someone who came in, I think, for a million pounds, didn't play a game, and then was sold for seven or eight to the championship um, to Leeds after some pretty decent seasons in the championship and forgettable ones in the Premier League. So they've used that system. I don't want to fall into the moral trap of good and bad, but they've used it to their financial advantage. Now they've used it, I think, to a sporting advantage on the pitch. Um, and, and that is before you factor in guys that we haven't really seen in the Premier League yet. Someone like Conor Gallagher, who had a great first half of the season at Charlton, has, has done similar at Swansea, will probably be in that discussion for pre-season next summer to, to try and prove that he can step up. Um, and I think, yeah, there, there are always going to be, I guess you could say, casualties to that kind of system. Maybe someone like Izzy Brown, you could even argue Bamford. But there's also a counter argument to that, which is if you're not good enough, you're not good enough to be quite brutal about it. If, if you aren't able to play at that level, Chelsea shouldn't have to baby or accommodate you. This is a football club. This is a business at the end of the day. And, and I think the the inclusions of Abraham, Tamori, they're on merit, nothing else. That's, that's the thing. I think maybe we're a little bit surprised with Tamori because it feels as if he's come from nowhere. But as someone that has spoken to coaches that worked with him when he played for Canada's under-20s and things like that. His talent was was never in doubt. He was in the championship. He just wasn't in the spotlight. And so people think, well, how have I never heard of this guy? That doesn't mean that he wasn't a good player in, in those moments. It's just a little bit of a perfect storm of them having these talents and then a summer where they can't buy anyone. So they've, <laughs> they've been able to, to introduce them. But I don't think you should misconstrue that as them suddenly trusting youth and... and abolishing the the policy of before i think it's just a kiss of these ones are better than the ones that were before them it is It's also pretty fascinating to see the geography of where you are owned in the world impacting um your experience of covid of a covid impacted football uh and obviously uh russia 
I mean, you know, it's had um, like uh, m medical miracles happen within that country. Really? And um, at the same time, uh, it, you know, we've also seen miracles happening around Roman Abramovich, who just seems to be reinvigorated with life, both politically and economically. Um, it's incredible. And incredible and, you know, story. Incredi um, they're incredible. They're incredible stories. You, you can't, you can't. Like I don't what, know if you what know, are you speaking Bob, to, but these, what are you speaking to? these are this is a fairy tale that's less happening to Roman Abramovich. Less between Abramovich the lines, right Lawrence. Attack the problem directly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, I don't see Roman Abramovich as a problem. This is nothing but a hardworking Russian man who's just trying to help a West London club. And I got to say, Adam, good. I'm good. all for it. I'm all good. for. I'm, I'm all for it, especially as Roman, you know, passed years ago. What I believe to be a watertight, fit and proper. <laughs> owner's test so right now i just couldn't think of a better club to be um doing well in the premier league and a club that's potentially going to deny liverpool the 2p next season is that a thing no not quite i, I mean but i i don't know i don't know if there's such thing as you've been watching a little bit too much of the last yeah, dance came and then trying to make adam, it work is, i don't know adam's if anyone ever goes so a, unfamiliar with success <laughs> that he called it a 2p isn't it one p yeah uh, yeah well what do you call winning the trophy again what is that what do you call winning what do you call doing something twice you call it a 2p yeah that's right yeah but do you think like it is it is a serious squad they're building, regardless of the merits of how they build that squad <laughs> over time. Yeah. But Timo Werner, uh, Ziyech, as we mentioned, potentially Ben Chilwell, Nick, as I said, it is an incredible team they've got there. Do you expect Absolutely. them to be the, the most serious contenders alongside City for this title next season? Do you mean ahead of Liverpool? No, no, alongside <laughs> Liverpool. Sorry, sorry. That was implicit. That was obvious almost. Um, you know what? I, I really worry actually. And that's another factor that we haven't really discussed with Liverpool that, um, we are seeing a repeat of, of previous narratives that have happened with Klopp, both at Mainz and at Dortmund where, mm. you know, to some extent the steam, um, you know, the steam was no longer able to be produced and people were emotionally and physically exhausted. Um, and that's partly why people are also relieved to see the quality of someone like Timo Werner coming in at Liverpool because, it's someone who could relieve the pressure on some of these guys, you know, people like Mane and Salah who mm -hmm. are under immense pressure at Liverpool to produce and to produce goals. Um, uh, uh, the whole team is really at this point, I think it must be incredibly draining. We saw that when they won the champions league last year, I don't know how much longer those kind of things can go on. So I think that will take away from what Liverpool will be able to offer next year. And I think it will leave uh, at least a much more competitive race at the top, especially considering that, you know, we don't know what's going to happen at City, how well they'll be able to refresh, how much Pep um, will have been able to continue beyond three years. He might be in uncharted territory to some extent as a manager now. And, uh, you know, it's also just the fresh excitement, the excitement of a Timo Werner wanting to impress, a Zicek wanting, or Ziyech wanting to impress. And then also whoever they get on the opposite side of that. I guess the only thing that you would worry could take away from that is that there are reports in the media now saying that it's one in, one out. So if they need to get Ziyech or Werner in, it's Kante who must go, and he wants to go to somewhere like PSG or something like that. That's that's a hell of a trade-off, isn't it, Chris, to bring in Werner for someone like Kante, who's probably the fan favourite player at Chelsea. Yeah, it's it's tough. And I think when you talk about Chelsea challenging next season, the central midfield situation is, for me, the one that I think needs sort of rectifying. Um I know they've Do you been think linked. left back? I think left back is definitely one that needs looking at. I think you can mask left back a little bit easier than central midfield. Sure. Um, okay. Yeah. Sorry. And 
I think with the Kante Jorginho situation, it's difficult because Kante is clearly very good at, at a specific role. They've tried Jorginho and it just doesn't seem to work from, from what I've seen. I'm open to, to disagreement on that one. But I, th- I think finding a player to fix that, I don't know if even that's the solution. I think Kovacic could be an important building block um, going forward because of his ability to progress through the lines. But it, it also depends really how um, Lampard is going to move forward with the team because he's been... I would say somewhat tactically adaptable or willing to try different things in this first year, I think, until he stumbles upon what he feels is the best solution. Um, and like I say, they've been linked to Havertz, but, but from what I have seen of Havertz, he seems to benefit from being in a slightly more advanced position. Um, so it, it's an interesting dilemma for him to have to sort. And I think until he does, I would struggle to really confidently predict Chelsea as, as potential title challenges. But they'll absolutely be better this se- next season, excuse me, than they were this season. Just just with Werner and Ziyech alone, they'll they'll be better because they've got a very good finisher and potentially someone to orchestrate things from uh, from the midfield in in Ziyech. The only caveat with Ziyech is that he can drift in and out of games. I've I've spoken to teammates who've said that um, and coaches who've said similar. So that's the only real. Um, warning you have with Zaj, but yeah, they'll be better than than last than this current season, excuse me. Try that again. It's also it's um, also sure. amazing to have a, a player in the league that Dave will also struggle again to pronounce. Because <laughs> even we on the podcast have done four different pronunciations of his name now. Yeah. Z um, yeah, everyone I spoke to called him Hakeem, which was very telling, I think. Well also uh, yeah, with, the, exactly. with the with the hypothetical of of like getting rid of Kante, I know that it is sort of a, a, a exactly that a hypothetical but ostensibly he would be one of the highest value players in that team it's also like important to know how just how important he is to Chelsea and like I said how he is to that idea of being a transitional team and you know he one needn't look no further than the title that he won with Chelsea or the title that he won with Leicester about how good that player is individually at creating transitions so if that is really a one in one in one out situation they really do have a problem on their hands because that's the player that everybody wants. There is no money tree in Russia. We all know that. <laughs> before before we move on, Chris, you want to? I was going to say, do you want to plug your article on Hachim? Um, yeah, you it, I think say his name. Say his name. <laughs> I did. I just said it as it should be said. It, it's funny. I think people are looking for the best football writing in the world at the minute, um, and it's not for me to say. <laughs> well, it, look it. no further. <laughs> oh, okay. Behind this paywall. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the wonderful thing. You don't have to scale a wall for this one. Um, you just have to watch adverts, I think. Um, but, but no. It's on the for, independent, you say. <laughs> for, for me, it was, it was interesting because I had watched Hakim Zayesh or Ziyech a lot when he was at Twente, a little bit when he was at Heronvin, and then obviously at Ajax. So I had what I thought was a fairly solid picture of the type of player he was, but the personality aspect is slightly different because you get snapshots of him when he was at 20 and he criticised everyone on the board for sacking Alfred Schroeder and was stripped of the captaincy. So he comes across as a a bit of a firebrand. But then you talk to people like Eunice Mokhtar, who paints him as someone that really needs the trust of people that he works with. So for for Lampard, if he can earn Ziyech's trust, he will get everything of him, which I found quite interesting. Um, And and the same with CM De Jong, who, who said quite openly, yeah, he can drift in and out of games, but he can also 
do something in a split second that makes his inclusion in the team entirely worthwhile. And he pointed to things like the goal against Valencia in the Champions League, which, again, is a brilliant strike from about 25 yards out, eight minutes in, that, that instantly puts Ajax on the front foot. So I think Chelsea are getting a very gifted player. The concerns about his physicality, I'm not so sure of. I mean, that, that same one kind of trailed him when he went into Heronvane's first team. There was a, a friendly against Ghent um, when he was just kind of breaking through where they were a bit physical. They were absolutely a bit physical, but he rode it fairly well. And, and it's similar to me. It's it's sort of felt similar to, to Miguel Almiron in the sense that when I asked teammates about his ability to handle the physical, they, they just said he, he can take a kick and he's quick, so he'll be fine. Don't don't really worry about it. So I think they're getting a very talented player. The, the 27 element, I think he's still got more than a good couple of years in him. Even I would say post twenty nine thirty, I think he'll he'll age fairly well because of the way that he plays and what he can do with the ball. So it's a bold move. I'm surprised more teams haven't come in for him. Um, I did put that to those teammates, and I think you know they they couldn't really give a concrete answer. De Jong's was I thought the the most interesting in the sense that he finds a lot of teams don't shop outside of Ajax, PSV, and occasionally Feyenoord when it comes to those top teams, um, right. which. You know, could be a lesson this summer, I guess, if teams are looking to try and think outside the box a bit and, and make the most of their money. Shall we finish up by talking about the controversy around total football analysis? I know nothing about this. You, and this gonna, is normally exa- this is normally so close to my heart as an indignant white guy. Nico <laughs> is gonna explain it to us, but it does seem like it may well be the latest in a long line of football content companies in the space who've maybe not been paying their staff who actually produce the content they publish, Nika? Yeah, uh, I don't, I, I can't, I couldn't pretend to tell the full story, but I will tell a little bit of my experience um, with it. And I, I think Chris, myself, a lot of other people that have written and worked in the industry in this capacity, like it, we've all experienced sort of these football brands that use you know, sort of these loopholes in the sense, like Adam mentioned at the top that they haven't been playing, paying their employees. And that's kind of where the discrepancies begin is what do you define as an employee? Um, That isn't in any way to defend what they've been doing, but essentially they're another one of these football websites that have profited off the, uh, the work of people who wanted to write about football. And they sold this dream of, we can get you exposure, we can get you um, possible monetary compensation in the future and or a position and or connections within the the footballing industry. Um, and those things never came. When I wrote for football, uh, total football analysis back in 2017, I believe it was, there was a promise of later on down the road, some pay or some position or some connections within the football industry. They just now, the reason that they're receiving this backlash is because in 2020, they have started to bring people on full time besides the two people um, that have been running it. And they receive backlash from the number of people that they have used to get there. And the further discrepancy goes is that generally they targeted uh, younger students, uh, students in at a university level um, in other countries who they could, if they were going to compensate them, because there has been some compensation, it just hasn't particularly been fair, um, that they could sort of milk uh the exchange rates um so you know maybe they get six articles a week uh from someone for an entire month for like 20 bucks um which obviously is 
ridiculous. So that's kind of the controversy there is that I actually it's not much controversy. It's just this is indicative or this is just one specific example of an industry that happens to do this a lot. There are football sites that pop up every single day. I think at one point in time, you know, every single day was was not an exaggeration um, that used people. All white guys have had an idea about for at some point. I think <laughs> Very much so, yeah. Acknowledge. Um, We've all had a, a white football brand that we wanted to create at some <laughs> point, guys. Um, that use, you know, people who simply want to write about the, something that they're passionate about uh, under the promise of, of pay or something in the future. And that obviously isn't right. Yeah. I mean, Chris, these sorts of practices are all too common, not, not just in football media, but in digital media broadly as well. I mean, this kind of exploitation is something we've seen before. Yeah. I think what is so annoying to me is that I think the promises that were made to those writers were made in bad faith. Um, and it's unfortunate that a group of young people would take advantage of firstly, and may now be completely against the idea of going into football because they had this bad experience at such a formative age. Um, the, the football writing industry in general, as I see it as someone that's been in it for, I want to say 10 years now, you could do a separate podcast on that in its entirety. Um, the when I got into it, the issues with paying people an exposure, um, which is obviously a buzzword for not paying them at all, <laughs> um, the big buzzword at the time <laughs> is um, is I think less prevalent now from from what I can see. But I'm also speaking from a position of of someone who's not trying to break in. Um, I think I've seen some advice that I I can't necessarily sign off on this idea that. You know, well, if you agree to do it for free, do it on your own terms and this kind of thing. Because I think at the same time, that is still taking advantage of people who um, are probably desperate to be in that position and, and just to have their name on a masthead or have their name as a byline. I, th I think in general, I don't know really where this industry is going in the next couple of years. Um, the emergence of the athletic in places like that have made it feel to me like it's a very polarizing industry where it's either a few hundred words for a transfer story or it's 6,000 words on the hot dog seller outside Dortmund stadium. It's, it's there's, there's no, <laughs> well, it so. feels to me like there's very little in between. There are a few places that still do, but the difficulty you have with that is that if you don't have the established name to get into the writing about Dortmund's hot dog seller, you may then have to go into the other one and that might not be what you want and that might be difficult and there's no guarantee that that will lead to the other opportunities. So it's a difficult industry and I see a lot of people not only talking it down but saying if they had the time again, they wouldn't get into it, which is, is a shame because I think it can be a wonderful job to have. Um, but at the same time, we have to self-govern ourselves a bit and start to actually take a, a, a real interest in not only how we take care of the next generation, but also how we take care of each other, because I think it's too easy just to pass things off if they don't impact us. Yeah, I mean, as Chris says, the economic realities of football media means you've kind of got these two models, someone like The Athletic, who are, who are subscription supported and have huge investment. Um, and then on the other hand, you've got maybe... If you're being uncharitable, you might say more clickbait-based content, more sensationalism that's ad-supported, and you kind of had these these two models that are competing to see which one 
is going to survive and which one's going to prevail. Neither. <laughs> Neither. What's the first, what's the what's the alternative? I don't know. Um, no, but that's the interesting thing. I think that the ad model is it's a it's what Mark Fisher called called realism. It's what. I think anyone else would call sort of a vicious cycle. It's that if you are out there to make some money, which inherently at a very basic level isn't a bad idea if you wanted to do it, um, you know, then you would have to compete with the other people in your market. And that's where immediately, that's where sort of the discrepancies begin is that you see all these, as as someone that used to, you know, you used to produce a a football channel, I'm sure you're familiar with these kind of things, is that you see everybody else doing everything, covering absolutely everything. So then you probably immediately don't have the workforce to cover absolutely everything. So then you look for loopholes as to how you might cover that. And, you know, SB Nation is no stranger to this, which is owned by Vox Media. You know, there are tons and tons of websites that eventually just kind of normalize this process of we need content and we don't have the capital to pay enough people to do that at a consistent level. So how can we do that? And it's getting people to do it of their own accord. And that abides by certain societal principles you know there's elements of what chris mentioned where people are talking about like advice and i wrote for a long time for free for websites and then i stopped doing it and then i started doing it for myself and i was lucky enough to catch a break and this that and the other and it's all there's no linear path there's no no two people who have succeeded in this industry in any capacity have done it the exact same way it's just simple as the difficulty is that part of that process seemingly is that there's an element of you have to pay your dues And you can rationalize doing a lot of work for somebody by saying, I just have to pay my dues. The difficulty is when oftentimes those promises of future pay of a position are made in bad faith. And they have been they have been found in the case of Total Football Analysis, in the case of SB Nation, in the case of countless others to have been in bad faith. And that's the most difficult part about it is that if everyone and it seems like there's a moment that's getting together to come to that point, if everyone got together and said, listen, I'm not going to write for free, I'm going to write for myself if I'm not not going to get paid, then you wouldn't have that those conditions that look to motivate people to exploit people but you need a sense of solidarity in order to do that and i actually think like again like this moment people are coming together to say that it's time to stop yeah i mean we're seeing a lot of people held to account in different ways i mean what has happened with total football analysis now how have the two owners responded i think i saw one of them Delete his account? Chris, yeah, Chris to, uh... Darwin, not to incriminate ourselves, but he is one of the guys. Um, they're owned by Ronnie Dog Media, um, which is another sort of media company that's funded by something. Um, and he's the activated account, <laughs> his account. Dog. And then... What's Ronnie Dog? It's some... I think it's a media organization, if I'm not mistaken, that bases itself in Russia. Don't quote me on that. I could be wrong. But the sure. other guy, Lee Scott... Um, Stepping out of the court, Morales said he was disappointed with. (laughs) 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 He, uh, Lee Scott, he has been, he's essentially just gone the complete opposite direction and said, listen, we've never promised to pay anybody. And, you know, that that's complete crap and, you know, whatever. So (laughs) 
again. It really yeah. doesn't help. Listen, yeah, we've never worse. paid a person. <laughs> that was exactly the issue. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's difficult. And again, there's a there's a, there's a more nuanced conversation even there, like conversations that Chris and I have had about the difference in football media between writing for entertainment, writing for you know someone like Statsbomb or ESPN or whatever, and writing about something that you and I and other people are going to talk about on a football entertainment podcast, and then people who have gone industry side and worked for clubs and worked as a scout. And Chris has done both of those things, so he's extremely knowledgeable in, 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 in that sense. But there's a discrepancy of pay between those two things and between the job security of those two things. You know, I had Tiago Esteval, who everybody seems to be familiar with, is a good friend. And he, he wrote for free for a lot of websites for a long time. Now he works at a professional club. Like, that's how it works out for some people, but it doesn't always work out that way. And more cases than not, it doesn't. It, That's it, unfortunately it also a little becomes, bit where social yeah. mobility comes into it as well. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, if you can a afford, a a, a, if you can afford yeah. to write for free, then you have a leg up on someone who doesn't. Yeah, I, I'd heard of a story of someone who was pretty much in that position where they, they didn't really ask for money just because they didn't need it. They had other means to support themselves. And Michael Cox told you that in confidence, though. So. <laughs> that that in itself is it wasn't Michael, to be clear. Um, no, wait, yeah, just to be absolutely <laughs> clear, Michael, we know it wasn't you. Yeah, and I'm really him, him sorry. Him and Miguel, I can't argue with either of those. They're both really Stop nice. Stop zonally marking me. I haven't got the energy. Um, but no, that that is a problem. Um, and and equally, what I had been surprised to learn today was that a lot of people said, you know, what, I haven't made uh, a living off just football writing in years. The, the, the same is true of, of myself. I've, I've done everything from research to some scripting to stuff that's got nothing to do with football. And it, in certain ways, it is beneficial to add that versatility to yourself as a worker. Chris but, has enjoyed success in the porn industry. Let's just <laughs> lay that out there. Um, it was a short film. But <laughs> I, I think boom, boom. what... I have felt at times during those periods is a sense of frustration that I can't dedicate myself to that football writing because then you start to think, how do I ever build the momentum to get to where I'm intending to go? If I can't dedicate more, if not all of my time onto this one um, discipline. So it's, it's, a, it's Nico's right when he says it's so difficult and so unique into not just how you break in, but how you sustain yourself and where you go with it. And that's why it makes advice so hard to give. And I would say at the same time, that's why in the instances where people have reached out to me for that advice, I ask them for a, a CV and kind of where they are in the world before we even start talking about anything. Because in some instances, that will dictate the route that you find in. If you're in a London compared to Bradford or you know, York, it's, it's a different setup completely. The opportunities are different. Um, and so I think this hopefully seeing as the world, it feels quite invested in change at the minute is a moment where we can start to look at things and see how we can do these things better. Because I think the incessant nature of needing profit over everything has made football writing a little bit disposable. And, and that to me is quite disheartening because that's not really in, in my mind, based on what I got into it is not what it's supposed to be about. I think also elements of football writing and elements of the industry have struggled to keep up with the fact that, you know, there before you would have gone to their website for very basic news, whereas now very basic news can be conveyed in a tweet, tweet or yeah. all these guys. 
And, and I, I know think, people that have been paid for Twitter threads. I mean, that just shocked my mind. I don't know. <laughs> but, but at the same time, that's also, if you think about it, that's also a really effective way of delivering news and a really oh, yeah. great use of the platform in that sense. But it, it's also about that versatility and about being able to take your, your skills and apply them across a number of different, um, you know, spaces, I guess, at the moment. And, you know, if anyone on this podcast is qualified to talk about late capitalism... It's Nico, but I think we are in those stages now where we can be, you know, while we're talking hopefully about, you know, all these kind of things, we also have to acknowledge that late capitalism also encourages this kind of behavior and encourages this kind of exploitation. So, you know, let's not be surprised when there isn't a completely, um, you know, level playing field that people are playing on. And to some extent, you know, we can try to level it out, but similarly to what happens with racism and what happens with all these um, other examples of inequality in society, we really, it's not going to be a case of, right, finally the tide is gone. It's a case of, all right, how are we fighting the new challenges on the coast here? And there's always going to be a challenge as to, there's always going to be someone who's unscrupulous. There's always going to be someone who's an arsehole because that is what happens. Um and hopefully, as an industry, we can help those kind of people out who are who are at those the behest of those people. Well, and I think that bridges. I, I think that bridges succinctly into an aspect of this that also needs to be discussed, which is part of the criticism that has been leveled directly at Chris and directly at sites like Total Football Analysis is the mental and the mental pressures that come under someone. You know, the anxiety, the depression, these things that are catalyzed by people in those positions who have demanded a lot out of those writers and those writers who see those opportunities as if I piss this guy off, then I'm not, I'm never going to have a shot to get into the industry that I deeply, deeply love. And that's part of the problem is that it sits at the root of this sense of exploitation. It, they, they understand the system that they are abusing. They understand the conceptions of knowledge that are forcing these people to like Six articles a week, I couldn't fucking do that. I can barely do one. You know what I mean? Like, that's insane. So, you know, that that's part of it, too, is that then shifting, and that's an industry thing. Like, Chris can talk about this, too. Like, part of it is when I was writing on my own completely trying to, you know, get, uh, you know, break into it, you sit there anxiously after your article drops, hoping it will fall into the right channels and the right people will, re will retweet it and the right people will see it and it'll catch the right momentum. And you're up as someone that lives in Orlando at 3 a.m. publishing at the right time, hoping to retweet at the exact right moment, not trying to beg for inorganic social you know, uh, en engagement, all these things. It's an extremely stressful thing to do. So then to take advantage of those people and these young kids in other countries and, and say, listen, if you don't pump out six articles a week, we're going to kick you off or you're not going to get paid or the paid the, the 20 bucks that we promised you, then that's completely fucking ridiculous. And that's part of the problem here. Excuse my French. Hmm. And Chris Darwin, the founder of Total Football Analysis, did pen an open letter of an apology, which we'll link to but some are already questioning its sincerity, should we say, Chris? It, it sounded just like a thinly veiled, we regret that we shone a light on our situation more than... It's a bit um, pretty Patel, wasn't it? If, you, know, you know the scene in The Office where Dwight says, I state my regret and says nothing else and then closes up. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of what that felt like. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I hope it leads to some kind of better practice practices. I, I must admit um i didn't realize the link between uh lee scott and this website um 
I know he's had a pretty successful Man City book. I believe he's in the process of writing a Klopp book. But I would hope moving forward they would not be disingenuous and imply that the pathway that he has taken is very easily um, traceable if you simply put hard work in because it probably isn't. And I w- I'm, I'm would kind end, of bored of hearing that, yeah. I, w- I would end on something that Oliver Gage said who, who works in the Canadian Premier League, which is actually... Um, if you want to try and break in and, and you want to do your own stuff in the way that Nico has done, because I think actually if it's your time and your dedication, there's there's a great joy to be taken from that, is to do stuff away from the mainstream. So, And he's right. I can probably find you now 10 articles on how Borussia Dortmund play or how Jaden Sancho plays. I probably can't find you 10 articles on how Scunthorpe play. So almost take a pleasure in going down a route that no one else you see is going down and using that as your jump-off point, and just see you where that takes you. You can only find one article between the link between Pep Guardiola and the circularity of time by your. <laughs> there you go. That, That's a really good point. Even, uh, even that, that, just kind of embrace the creative process of it. I mean, that that to me seems like a good way to get enjoyment out of it, if, if nothing else. Having said that, Total Football Analysis have, of course, today published Austrian Bundesliga 2019-2020. <laughs> Wolfsburger AC versus LASK Linz. Um, I can only say I'm wetting myself at the concept of reading. It's this kind of we scintillating journalism. We, we won't link to those in the podcast. Though, so we'll link to, to Chris's <laughs> article about Hatchim Ziyech and, and Nico's It's a great article. It's a really great article. the circularity of time. We'll link to that it's as well. It's also <laughs> a really great... Similarly written, I must say. <laughs> yeah. Uh, similar themes. Um, but guys, that does bring us to the end of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Lawrence. Chris, Nico, I need to let you guys know we're not paying you for the appearance we're, this evening. Just yes, so you guys right. <laughs> what, what they don't know, Lawrence, is that we're paid handsomely for this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we've podcast. made billions of the front The bonus podcast we've got coming up later in the week, we're paid for that handsomely as well. That's a really good point, actually, yeah. That'll be out on Friday. So as I say, look for that in your feeds. Until then, see you soon. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.